Hey, quick, quick word of encouragement. If you've not <clears throat> gotten to hear Dan speak, uh, who's speaking this evening and here, if you're not already involved in a life group that meets tonight, I would really strongly encourage you to come. Uh, Dan is super bright, um, super well-prepared, very conscientious. He knows his stuff. He's always open to questions. So, and here at 5.30, I would really love to recommend. I, I, honestly, Dan is a friend. He's been a great encouragement to me. Um, and uh, I would love to encourage you to also come and get to know him, meet him tonight. So, again, in here at 5.30, we probably should be charging for time with Dan, uh, but we're not. So, um, take advantage of that until Dan's too famous for us to get him for free. So, uh, again, please come, come tonight at 5.30. Also, um, we take something we probably should do, at least in our hearts every day, we take a couple of times a year to remind ourselves to say thank you for those who have been willing to face um, life and death in order to purchase the freedoms that we get to practice like this. So if you are a veteran, would you please stand so we can just say thank you, um, uh, any veterans in the room? Please, I, know it's, I know you don't like to do this, but please do. Thank you. I teach, a, uh, I teach a government class uh, about every four years to a homeschool group, and uh, every year I, I list out what I consider to be the, the, moral, the main moral issues that our government faces and for the most part fails at. And, uh, and the way we engage with and treat and honor our veterans is one of those. Um, I would sure love for one party or the other to finally get it right and do a good job of taking good care of you guys, and the least we could do is say thank you. Um, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your willingness to serve um, and to face those uh, trials on behalf of the rest of us. So, again, thank you. Um, this, this week, as we jump into uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, um, so if you've got your Bible, you can turn over in 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you don't have one, there's some scattered in the seats in front of you. It'll be on the screen. Um, if you don't have your own copy of the Bible, let us know. We would happily give you one. Um, we'd love for you to have your own copy. They don't, they're not magic. They don't, they don't protect you from evil spirits by having them in your house or something like that. Um, you, you've got to read it, learn it, understand it, apply it, um, which is why we do what we do um, here on Sunday mornings and other times during the week for Bible studies and stuff like that is to dive into this. So let's look and see what um, a historical passage about a battle that took place 3,000 years ago, um, how it impacts, impacts our lives today. So here's this, to catch you up, it's been a couple of weeks, um, David and his men had intended to go into battle alongside the king of Gath, a man named Achish, his enemy, a man who had been his enemy all of David's life, um, and now David has joined with him in an effort to escape Saul. This was always a bad plan, and I feel comfortable judging that and saying this was a bad idea. God did, uh, David did not look to the Lord to guide him in this, it was purely a fear-based decision, and he went to go work for his very enemy, um, the king of Gath, Achish. And now he had found himself a couple of chapters ago in a serious bind where it looked like David was going to be stuck having to go to war against his own people, the Israelites. Would he have done it? We don't know. We'll never know. I guess maybe we can ask him someday if he knows. Um, would he have done it? David had been lying and killing to cover up a double life for about a year and a half. He had been serving Achish in one sense, but not in the way that Achish thought. Achish thought David was a man of total honesty and complete integrity. That's because he was fooled by David, not because David was a man of honesty and integrity at this stage in his life. He was not. 
The other kings of Philistia, however, didn't trust David and his 600 cutthroats and soldiers, um, kind of almost special forces, combination of special forces plus pirates, uh, cutthroat barbarian guys who traveled around with David, and, and that's who we're dealing with. So what happens is the battle between Saul and the armies of Israel and the five kings of Philistia is about to begin. That's where we ended the last chapter. This decisive battle is about to happen. Saul has already been told, you're going to lose this battle, and you're going to die in this battle, and Jonathan, your son, is going to die with you in this battle. That's how the last chapter ended. Now we turn the page to the new chapter, and we're looking forward to reading and hearing about how God um, delivers his judgment or delivers his people, and what's going to happen in this chapter and, and we see that David has been sent home to Ziklag, um, back home, which we'll talk more about that in a minute. And we start verse 1 in chapter 30, and it's disappointingly not about that battle. Exactly what we thought was about to be, it is not. And now when David and his men came back to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, taking captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David's brilliant plan of lying and stealing and murdering has quite literally blown up in his face. It's at least burned down around him. Now, in the Middle East, jackals and in Africa, jackals are those animals that wait at the edge of the predator-prey battle. When there's an opportunity, they dart in, get a mouthful, get a bite of something, and then dart back out in an effort to not get caught by the wildebeest or the lion or whatever it happens to be. The Amalekites were understood to be the jackals of the Middle East at this time. That's the way they fought. They dove in and they had this opportunity. The five armies of Philistia have now marched to the Valley of Jezreel. The armies of Israel have gathered near at Gilboa, Mount Gilboa, ready for a big battle. This would have taken several days to bring together at least, and the Amalekites see their opportunity. They dart into Israel and to Philistia. They, they steal from the Philistines. They raid Philistine cities. They raid Israeli cities, etc. And then they're going to come in. They find Ziklag, and Ziklag has no one in it, no soldiers. All of David and his men are at the battle, um, actually 60 to 80 miles away, as we're going to see in a minute. <coughs> and they take all the women, all the children, and they burn the city to the ground. It has no defenders. That's it. Here they are back again, um, the Amalekites, our favorite people. This time the cost is severe, and David's men who trusted him and his crazy plan are going to start pointing fingers. Verse 4, David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now I just have to comment, by the way. Reading through this, I was stricken yet again at what a joke humanism is. Um, I've mocked humanism before. I know there's a Christian version kind of humanism, and I like humans. Uh, okay. I mean, if you've met a few, it, it, they wear fast, you know. Um, but if, you, if you've got some patience, humans can be pretty awesome, um, and it's, it's really amazing to be a part of this human race. It is, as C.S. Lewis says, an honor to raise the head of the lowliest beggar. It is also humiliating enough to, to lower the shoulders of the greatest king. That being said, humanism, the thought that human beings are going to solve all of our own problems, is a joke. This event happened 3,000 years ago, and it happened again one month ago. In the same place it happened. In fact, 
The river we're going to read about later in this chapter, the Brook of Besor, has, it still exists. It has a new name. It's called the Wadi of Gaza. It is literally the river, right now it's most often dry for various reasons, that runs right through the Gaza Strip, right in the same location as it did. In fact, let me show you on this map. This is the map at the time of Jonathan and David. So here down here you have Ziklag. There's Ashkelon. Ashkelon is still a city. People still live in Ashkelon or near to it, not on top of the ancient ruins, but near to it right there. And there's Ziklag right there, just barely just to the... So this is, the Gaza Strip is like this now. Actually, it's like this. It runs just south of Ashkelon. This literally, this next picture, the headline for this picture was about police rescuing a family from where a, a Hamas bomb had hit the car over there in Ashkelon. Same place. The very same thing. The people of Am the Amaleks, the Amalekites, came out of their country to the south, kidnapped, stole, burned, terrorized, and then ran back to their own homes. We haven't changed a lot in 3,000 years as a race, have we? It's as if we need a Savior to come in from the outside and solve our problems. Uh, this, is what, this is what we've got to recognize. David's two wives, verse 5, David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Now remember, these are, these are the very same men who have been marching with David, who have gone into battle with David, who have fought for a year and a half with David, and now they face this trauma and immediately start pointing their fingers at David. By the way, and rightly so, David got them into this mess. His, his responsibility, talking on the podcast, um, John Redford pointed out, listen, if you put yourself in a position to make decisions like God, you're going to be the God in other people's lives. You're going to make decisions for them as though you're God. Be prepared to get called into account when those decisions blow up in your face. You did not have the insight to make that decision. You didn't have the right to make that decision, but because you placed yourself in the place of God, and I'm now going to make a decision for everybody, when that blows up, you should hear about it, and you're going to. And consider, these are 600 people who we already know are bitter, angry, edgy people. That's why they're with Dave in the first place. So we see once again these unhappy and bitter people, they come out and say, man, you, you have failed us. They start picking up rocks to kill David. Only God has the insight to make these decisions, and David has not done a whole lot of seeking insight from God, as far as we know, in years. And I hold off on the last phrase here because it's a big deal. It's one of my favorite little passages in the entire Old Testament. David has not referenced God. He has not referenced God within the, our hearing, at least in Sir Samuel, since he spared Saul's life the second time in chapter 26. However, we have not seen David petition the Lord since he left Keilah in chapter 23. It's only a few chapters for us. It represents several years for David. So did he write any psalms during this time? There's no evidence that he did. I don't think he did. There's several psalms. We don't know when he wrote them, but there's, nothing, there's none of the psalms say written during the time when he was fighting for Achish. Um, there's one that says written during the time when he was captured by Achish. We already talked about that one. I think that was another time. This is not that. Now, finally, at last, this next phrase tells us that David finally does what David does so well. But David strengthened himself 
in the Lord his God. David finally stops just reacting. He stops seeking to rescue himself, a sin that Abigail had already called him out on before. He remembered the Lord, the Lord who would save him, and here he finds strength. David is flawed. He's frail. He's afraid, and he is prideful. This is because he is a man. He's a human being. But David always eventually looks to the Lord for strength. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. What makes David special as a man after God's own heart isn't somehow his merit. It's not somehow his character or his strengths. It is because eventually you can count on this. David, no matter how hurt he gets, no matter how angry he gets, no matter how despairing he gets, he will look to the Lord and find his strength there. David finally hit rock bottom and he looked up. I've always imagined David looking back on this. Maybe you've had times like this in your life that you've looked back on your life and said, how did I get there? What was I thinking? How could that possibly be the case? How could I have ever made these decisions? That's got to be what David is doing over these next few days. And by the way, I've got to say this. This is vitally important for us to understand. David, David's life did not suddenly get better. There was not this instantaneous magic flash of light and all of a sudden everything was returned the way it was supposed to be. David is still going to live for years, seven plus years, in turmoil, in difficulty, in challenges. And in fact, he's about to have to do a marathon and then fight for 24 hours after looking to the Lord and finding his strength. This is the truth. The, the health and wealth teaching that when you look to the Lord, God's going to fill your bank account and you're going to somehow get magically younger, I've never understood that one, and healthier, like that kind of stuff, like, yeah, toss that. David looks to the Lord, and now he's got some of the, probably two of the hardest days of his life before he sees the results come back from the Lord. Uh, I put out some, we've got a slide, I handed out some psalms. These are all psalms, examples of psalms in which the psalm itself is filled with the despair and longing, and then there's a verse in it that communicates David's belief that he can find strength in the Lord. Verse 7, David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar dusted off and brought the ephod to David. It doesn't say dusted off in the original, That's I added that. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you surely shall overtake and shall surely rescue. I love this moment. I picture this moment as David has called Abiathar to him. He asks some questions. God speaks through the ephod. And I picture David's men who are all sitting holding rocks. And now instead, they've all got the grin on their face that says, he's back. David's back. This is why we're here. This is the man we're following. This man right here. The first thing David does when he's in his right mind is to call upon Abiathar to look to the Lord himself. Verse 9, so David set out and the 600 men, by the way, don't you love that? He hears from the Lord. This should be how this works. You hear from the Lord. The next phrase in your life should be action. You hear from the Lord. Therefore, you act. It's that simple. He hears from the Lord. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 men stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Now, you're going like, man, Chris, you just described these guys as like cross between Navy SEALs and 
and, and like Vikings, and, and yet 200 of them, did they just can't do it? Like they've, they've run out of energy? Let's look at this map again. So here's Ziklag down here. That's where they discover that their city has been burned and their women and children have all been stolen. Where was the battle they were going to have? Anybody remember? Near what? Near Mount Gilboa. There. Ziklag. There. That's 60 to 80 miles across mountainous desert regions. Verse 1 told us, this is why, I was reading through it, and I was like, why have we found, why in this chapter does it tell us twice how long the timetable is? We never get that. Why has he told us that twice? What did, verse 1, how long did it take them to get from Gilboa to Ziklag? 60 to 80 miles. Three days. Anybody want to do that one? 60 to 80 miles through Israel. Those who have been to Israel are like, uh, no thanks, Right? That's, that's more than we can do. most of us can do in a week, in a month. Many of us would have a hard time walking that far, right? And yet they do it in three days all the way down to here. They get down to Ziklag. They discover it's burned. Their women and children are missing. David finally looks to the Lord to find his strength. The Abiathar comes up. He hears from the Lord. You can overtake these people and you can rescue your people. I don't think they've even unstrapped their sandals yet. I think they've got backpacks on. Maybe they've taken those off. If any of you have ever done a long hike, you know what that feels like. You take the pack off. You finally feel like you can breathe again. You feel like you're okay again. You're ready to just crash, to do whatever. And that if the, if the guide then goes, okay, pack's back on. Now we're going to run the last bit. We've walked the last 60 to 80 miles. Now we're going to sprint the last 10 to 20. So they put their packs back on. And they run all the way to the, to the Basor Spring, which we don't know exactly, Basor Brook, we don't know exactly where Ziklag is. Somebody actually thinks they've discovered it in the last couple of years. Um, they get there, it's somewhere between 10 and 20 miles to this river. They've been running the whole way. They've got another 10 to 20 miles to find the Amalekites. It's no wonder that 200 of them just can't go on. So all the rest of them strip off everything they don't need. Just enough food for a day or two and their weapons, and that's it. And they leave the baggage, they leave all that with the 200 who are at the brook trying to catch their breath. Verse 11, we now let it literally have 400 men honed and hardened just like the weapons they carry. And they're chasing down the Amalekites. Verse 11, and they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. They had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. What an intriguing timeline this passage is giving us. In order to make it work, I actually had to sit down and kind of draw it out a little bit. David leaves Gilboa on the same day Ziklag is hit by the Amalekites, in other words. The day that David leaves Gilboa, Ziklag is being burned. Two days from Gilboa, day one, day two, the night of day two, is when Saul is visiting the witch of Endor. Day three, they get to Ziklag and start their race. This is the same day that Saul dies. In fact, when things are this close in Hebrew Scripture, you should probably assume they're simultaneously happening. David is defeating the Amalekites, and Saul is dying at the hand of the Philistines at almost the exact same time, which probably means at the exact same time. 
Not to give you a spoiler, Saul's not going to survive the next day. The band of Amalekites is three to four days ahead of David, and now he and his men are catching up to them. I love this. I love movies in which the protagonist feels inevitable. He's coming. You don't, you're dead. You just don't know it yet if you're the bad guy. You've kidnapped his children. You've kidnapped his daughter, his son. You've kidnapped his wife. You've kidnapped his people, and you think you're getting away, and the person who's been kidnapped is actually chuckling a little bit going, you don't know who you just kidnapped from, Right? This is what makes us all afraid of Liam Neeson, even though he's just an actor. He has a certain set of skills. He's going to come get you. It's just a matter of time. It's how the, you only got two hours, right? This is, this is Strider from Lord of the Rings. He's chasing you down. He's going to catch you. It may be soon. It may be later. He's going to catch you. The most recent Tarzan movie did a great job with this. Tarzan's going to come rescue Jane. It's just a matter of time. You, you've made a huge mistake. How arrogant to steal from David. I mean, how arrogant do you have to be to steal from David? He kills 10,000. What a mistake to make. And how arrogant to leave behind this Egyptian wandering in the wilderness. The Amalekites don't care about him. He's sick, so they leave him with no food and water. These are some nice guys, aren't they? Don't you love the Amalekites? Meanwhile, David's men treat him with hospitality before they even know he's worth something to them. Verse 13, David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burg Ziklag with fire. Now this has to strike David's heart. David just heard a very similar list to the list he used to give to Achish. This is the very people he used to claim to steal from and pillage. David essentially is realizing in this moment, I've been pretending to be an Amalekite for the last year and a half while pretending to be Goliath working for Achish for the last year and a half. I have become my very enemies. How low has he sunk? Verse 15, David said to him, will you take me down to this band? He calls him a band. What do you see in a minute what that means? And the Egyptian said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to the band. I think it's fascinating that he thinks he's in a position to negotiate at all. Um, but uh, David apparently is nice enough that he lets him do that. How arrogant and how confident were these Amalekite raiders? Look at this. When they had taken him down, behold, they, meaning the Amalekite raiders, were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. What fools spread out, no guards, no watch, no walls, eating and drinking, and I know this is hard for us, a Baptist crowd, dancing. They deserve everything that's coming right here, right? <laughs> Verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. 24 hours, he and his 400 men killed them for 24 hours. They must have fought. They didn't all run. Eventually, some of them run. Um, David struck them, and not a single man escaped. I love, again, the way Hebrews tell the story. Not a single man escaped, except, of course, 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Now, what's significant about that? 400 men escape David's attack. How many men is David starting the attack with? 400 men. They kill men for 24 hours, and yet as many as David starts with escape this little band of Amalekites was apparently hundreds of people. 
And David's men slaughtered them down to the 400 who escaped. David recovered, verse 18, all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Another miracle. A lot of times in Hebrew writing, there are miracles woven in and treated like coincidences meant to attract your attention to the fact that obviously this isn't a coincidence. Hey, by some amazing lucky chance, they found an Egyptian just wandering out in the middle of nowhere. What, a, what an amazing coincidence. You're not supposed to buy that for a second. Of course, it's not a coincidence. God led them here. Not a single one of their people are lost. Verse 20, David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Remember, David is now capturing the spoils of apparently many hundreds of raiders who have raided several Philistine and Jewish communities, as well as the return of his own stuff. This, I think, is also a hyperlink to that time you read in Genesis when, when Abraham chases down with his men five armies, five Canaanite armies, and destroys them and brings back all this spoil it's so similar to it, you almost expect David to run into um, Melchizedek on his way back to Ziklag, um, although those names sound too, they're too much fun together, so maybe that's part of the problem. But the, the getting, getting Melchizedek, instead what you're going to discover is something different. He's going to do more than pay a tithe. Uh, Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. David is going to do much more than that. But what I think this is showing us is that David is God's chosen leader for his people, just like Abraham was God's chosen leader for his people. David is suddenly in his right mind. He's following the Lord. He is listening. He is speaking. Everything seems right, which is amazing because this should be a chapter of absolute despair. <clears throat> I don't think that's an accident. Before we wrap up this account, though, I want us to look at something. God allows some terrible things to happen here. God allows all of these families, including David's, to face the trauma of being kidnapped and dragged through the wilderness for several days. What a horrifying experience that must be. Yes, God provides a rescuer for them. Yes, God provides a savior. Yes, God provides victory. And yes, God provides a homecoming for them. But if God knew he was going to bring them all back anyway, why go through all this? Why not just strike the Amalekites with an earthquake or, or a lightning bolt or something before they can even kidnap David's people? Why doesn't David come back to discover a bunch of dead Amalekites that God's angels have slain? Why does God allow, this, allow them to face this kind of hardship when he's just going to redeem them anyway? Well, I'm glad you asked. And the answer is, I don't know. And neither do you. None of us do. This problem of suffering and of human suffering is something that is clearly above our pay grade. Now listen, as with things that are often above our pay grade, above our experience, above our understanding, there are moments we can spot it. That makes sense. I now see why that was there. Okay, I'm putting the pieces together over here. There are times we can do that. But understand, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is that almost every other um, religious system offers an easy, simple swallowable answer for human suffering, and they're rubbish. I don't buy it for a minute. Scripture does not offer that. We have a whole book. Think about, okay, great. I'm so glad that David got all this stuff returned to him. That's awesome. That doesn't take away how hard this was. That doesn't take away how scary this was. That doesn't take away the pain and difficulties of all of this stuff. It doesn't just magically make that better. You ever thought that at the end of Job? 
When, when the end of, jo- I mean, Job, who does absolutely, the only reason Job faces hell on earth for a while is because he's righteous. That's literally the only thing ever, ever accused against him is, well, he's righteous, so he's going to face hell on earth for a while. And at the end, by the way, at the end of that, it says, and again, God gave back all his flocks and all that, yeah, okay, fine, and 10 more children. Is that how children work? You're like, hey, you know what? I lost 10, but at least I got 10 new ones. No, he's still going to grieve the loss of 10 children. These were his children. They don't suddenly just, oh, well, as long as they're all replaceable, that's just how that, it's great that God gives him 10 new children. That doesn't take away the pain, the sorrow, the suffering, and the trauma of this kind of stuff. Why didn't God just start with the new Jerusalem? Why did you start with heaven? Why give them Eden to start where they could, things could go so badly? Why not just start with the new Jerusalem? I think these are fair questions. We don't know the answer to them. We don't get to hold God to account. <clears throat> We're not judging him with this. I think God understands that these are hard questions for us. Why not start God, men, human beings, truly free, but without the weakness to sin? God, you could have skipped all this, couldn't you? However, there do seem to be some things that are accomplished in this. Though I don't understand the significance quite, and I don't know that I ever will, maybe in heaven I will someday, but I won't fully understand. But I see this. If I want someone to understand that I can redeem them, that I can save them, that I'm willing to die for them, that I love them so much I will rescue them from their own sin and their own death and from the just wrath of that, yeah, maybe there's a part of me that goes, I've got to have something to redeem them from. I'm going to save them from something. And so maybe, maybe it makes sense that God has allowed us to make all these horrible decisions and this, live in this fallen world and face these difficulties. Here is what I accept as a promise from God. I understand why not everyone's willing to do this. I am. In the end, even the worst things that I face, that, allow, that He allows me, us, to face, is for our best. Not just his best, not only our best, not only Christianity's best, not only creation's best, but as individuals, each of our best. Like a child, I cannot understand how that works, but I don't understand how square roots work either, so it's not surprising that I don't understand how something like this works. Who am I? It's a difficult step. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left by the brook Besor, and when they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, and then David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have received, recovered, except that each may lead away his wife and children and depart. So not all of the men, just the nasty ones, the killers, not the tactical leaders, they're so dismissive, they think they're stepping out in some way to let the guys have their own families back. Now watch David handle this. This is David. This is who we love. This is the anointed leader. He's going to be gentle, and he's also going to be strong. It's, it's probably just a few loud people. We've all run into that. Verse 23, <clears throat> David says, you shall not do this, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would even listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. The baggage shows up yet again. Yet again, we're reading about baggage. Saul, who would, who would always have been with the baggage, can share alike. 
they shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Now, David is not the one who came up with this. Numbers 31, in Numbers 31, God actually mandates this kind of a rule. This was God's battle, not theirs. God won the battle, not them. We're all equal sharers in the result of this ministry. This, this struck us as we were talking about this on the podcast this week. It came to our mind. We were, the capital campaign was on our mind, and it came as an example of this. What if I can only give a few dollars? What if I can give hundreds of thousands of dollars? What if I remember to pray every day? What if I only pray semi-faithfully? I pledge to be involved in what the church is doing, including this type of capital campaign, but what if I'm not good at it? Or what if I can't do much? Or what if I'm not super faithful about all of it? Well, here's the good news. We all get to partake in the ministry that happens under the roof of these buildings equally. I wasn't here when this roof was built. I wasn't here when this property was bought. But I get to partake in it, and so does my family. We all get to experience it. None of us were here in 1848 when First Baptist Church was founded who then later planted us. I assume if the Lord tarries, decades of ministry will continue to happen here long after we're gone, long after no one remembers our names. After no one can pronounce them, no one can say them, why would you not want to sign your name to the bottom of this to be able to say, I invested time or prayer or money into what the church is doing? That's our investment. It's to our advantage to get to be involved in this. I hope you do if you haven't yet, at some level. We had about $50,000 more pledged since last week. We had another couple of dozen people um, pledged to pray um, for us. We're, that, those numbers are going up, but they're still nowhere near what I think they should be. I, I would love to see us up over 400 people invested and involved in this. Now David gets back to Ziklag, and listen to what happens. If the story is great, if it ended here, it would be a celebration. David comes back to Ziklag. He sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. For those in Bethel, of Ramoth, of the Negev, in Jatir, in Eror, and a whole bunch of unpronounceable places that just as the point I'm making a second ago says, we don't remember who these people were. We don't know where these places are. Most of us can't pronounce them anyway. All these different places, all the way to Hebron and the places where David and his men had roamed, they also got to share in the victory that God had provided. And as Alistair Begg points out, not one of them had earned it. None of them had done a thing. They hadn't even been at the baggage, much less anything else. This is what happens when we fully understand grace. When the grace poured out on us, then begins to pour out of us into the lives of others and we begin to see that, the grace that, that can pour out into the lives of everybody else. And this is a beautiful picture of this. This chapter was supposed to be the chapter about the defeat of Israel and the death of Saul and Jonathan. But the author, before we face that moment, wants us to understand God is still at work. God is still pouring out his grace on his people. And some of his people get it. And the ones who get it, their grace pours out into others' lives as well. They're living the life that God has given for them in this moment. <clears throat> Guess what? This falls into, once again, the heading of being invited and inviting. This is the message for all of us to hear. Tragedy should be in the air. We should be fast forward. You see the Jezreel Valley filled with blood. David didn't know it, and neither do you unless you've read this before. But Saul and Jonathan are dead by the time David is handing out these gifts. How fascinating. Israel's army is defeated. The Philistines are dominant. But the author first wants us to follow David's example and know that when we face the trials, when we face the difficulties, when we face the hardships, when we are rejected by our own people, when we've lost our own families, that we look up and look to him 
to find our strength. The pain may not go away. There may still be years of hardship ahead of us, but God has put David in a place where he can practice his gifts again, which is part of what he promises us. I think he will work things together for good for those of us who love him and who he has called according to his purpose. And even if we can't see how, I think he will. So if you will, stand with me. I'm going to read from Psalm 42 here. In reading from Psalm 42, I want you to notice we read this first line we love because it sounds like a kid's song or something. This, this, this psalm begins with an animal that is dying. That's what's going on here. Verse 42, chapter 42, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read. Uh, actually, let me first say, if you've, if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family in a minute when we have that time of invitation is the time to do that. I know I skipped that last time on purpose because we we're focused on a very specific message. If you didn't get to join last time or we're going to last time, now's a great day to do it. Whatever it is, come on down. If you need some prayer or you want someone to pray with you or you need to fall on your face before the Lord and look up to Him and find your strength there. I hope you'll do that this morning. You can do that here at this altar in the corner. Someone will be there to pray for you or, or up here. Whatever it is, I pray that you're listening what the Lord has for you, that you look to the Lord for your strength. All the other things, the provisions that God gives in the midst of that are good. But fundamentally, it's Him. We start a psalm about an animal dying. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? The Hebrew there means pressed in or depressed. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God, the very words of the Lord.